0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, so if you'd like to make a donation or apply to study at seminary, you can always give me a call or shoot me an email. Uh, Here in the studio with me over the phone, I have one of our graduates, the Reverend Dr. Vincent Wood, Otherwise known as Pastor Vince, and I have him joining me here in the studio for a graduate spotlight. Pastor Vince, thank you so much for joining me.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for uh, leading in the conversation.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Pastor Vince graduated from Greenville in 1994 with a Bachelor of Divinity, and he later earned a Master of Arts and a PhD from Trinity Theological Seminary based out of Indiana. Since 2012, he served as the pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church, PCA, in York, Pennsylvania. And before coming to Providence, he pastored Emanuel Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and served as the MTW team leader in Scotland. He recently published a book entitled The Train, A Model for Transforming the Heart, and he also blogs regularly at Wood Thoughts. He and his wife, Robin, have been married since 1985 and have two sons, a daughter-in-law, and a granddaughter. Vince, is there anything you want to add to that?
1: That's an awful lot. That's <laughs> fine.
0: Well, I usually like to start at the beginning uh, in our graduate spotlights and, and introduce you to our audience. Uh, I think you may be, um, you're certainly one of the earlier graduates of the seminary in ministry in general, but you also are probably the earliest graduate of the seminary ever to be featured on a graduate spotlight. So can you tell us, how did you come to pursue pastoral ministry as a vocation in the first place? When, when did you first sense a call to the ministry?
1: I guess God began to uh, impress on my heart the, uh, moving into pastoral ministry. Probably in the mid to late '80s, uh, we began to attend what was a, a church plant in Fort Collins, Colorado, the PCA Church. My wife had grown up in the the PCA in Colorado Springs at Village Seven, so we were familiar with it and. Uh, Shortly after attending, I was finding uh, fruit that God was bringing through Bible studies that I was leading, and and I recognized a desire to uh, test that a little bit. I spoke with the pastor who is now a pastor in uh, Albuquerque. He also uh, has a great fondness for uh, Greenville, Randy Steele. and uh, Randy agreed to give me opportunities to teach and to preach and uh, also to shepherd the flock, recognizing that the ministry was much more than than just being, if you will, a a talking head in the pulpit, but uh, really uh, giving my life to the people. And uh, through those opportunities became clear, both in my own heart, uh, my wife, um, and the congregation that that God was indeed calling me to ministry. Uh, We put it off for a little while, so that I could be uh, one of the first ruling elders uh, when the church was organized. They, They needed to uh, be sure they had enough men who were there to accomplish that task. And uh, I thank God for that privilege because I was able to serve them as as a ruling elder on the other side of a session um, before actually becoming a teaching elder, and I think it gave me a, a good understanding. Um, so that was the, the, the call to ministry, and uh, the call to get the education was an entirely different story. Uh, I started out at uh, a tiny school in uh, southern Colorado up in the mountains, uh, Sangre de Cristo Seminary. There were uh, four students there when I started, not in my class, in the school. Uh, it was very, very few. It's actually a school uh, started by Gordon Clark's uh, son-in-law, uh, Dwight Zeller. Uh, so uh, it, it was interesting in, in several ways. At that time, wasn't necessarily associated with the PCA, and I saw in my own heart that uh, that's just where my convictions uh, were. And uh, Randy and another pastor suggested as I was thinking about other schools that also might challenge me a little bit more um, they suggested Greenville uh, and that was when I headed out uh, to South Carolina which was really helpful just in the formation of my my ministry from then on, and I really was grateful that God uh, provided that opportunity.
0: Well, I'm glad that you came and you joined us. You came down off the mountain, so to speak. Uh, though we're, we're, we're friendly with the men over at Sangre de Cristo. They're good brothers. We have warm relationships with them, but I'm glad that you came to Greenville, and I'm doubly glad that you stayed, because when you were here at Greenville, things were quite a bit different than they are now. Can you, oh why why don't you tell why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what the uh, what the physical environment was like down at the old Augusta Street um, Presbyterian Church building where the seminary you know first met?
1: Thanks for reminding me of the name of the church. I couldn't remember. It was uh, weighing on me. Augusta um,
0: Road or Augusta Street is one of the two.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was rough. <laughs> it, it was a, um it was a church that was, was very old. Um, the rooms were well used, uh, to, to put it uh, that way, you know, meeting in, in Sunday school classrooms. Um, and uh, there, there weren't a lot of on-site uh, professors. Um, I think uh, Ben was uh, one of uh, the few who was actually there all the time at that point. A lot of the professors were adjunct and would fly in. Uh, Henry Kravendam and Greg Singer were, were two that uh, I just adored. Uh, thank God so much uh, for their involvement. Um, so it was very different. I was also working, uh, I guess, 32 to 40 hours a week uh, while going to seminary full time. Uh, so I spent as little time as I could at the uh, the church there where the location was, just trying to get in and uh, do the classes and then uh, get on with the uh, uh, being a part of a church, uh, doing my work, caring for my wife. I had a son at that point, and uh, it was a pretty busy time. But it's been really neat to see uh, as uh, Greenville has grown and, and been able to have its own permanent facility. We're just really thankful for
0: that. So are we. And, and I'm, yeah, especially, okay. I'm yeah. especially thankful that the ceilings in our classrooms aren't falling on us.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, get, I, I forgot about that. That was another element that was...
0: In all seriousness, uh, there there are very few seminaries that that had beginnings that were anything um, but humble. Uh, and when you look into the history of RTS Jackson or Westminster Philadelphia or Reformed Episcopal Seminary, um, you see, and even Columbia Theological Seminary, and we're talking about antebellum stuff and and Princeton, right. you see very humble, very modest beginnings, and we're extremely thankful to Calvary Presbytery, or what is now Calvary Presbytery the PCA. Having um having allowed us to use the facility down on uh, down on Augusta in Greenville and we're, we're thoroughly thankful to be here now in the old Taylor's high school building um, totally renovated and and refabbed, so to speak now when you um, when you were at Greenville what church did you attend
1: you know we uh, visited a, a number and we ended up uh, worshiping almost the whole time at Fellowship Presbyterian Church, which I think was in Greer.
0: Yep, still there.
1: And uh, while we were there, one of the men who worked with the seminary um, was involved in a, a merge of two congregations. He'd been a, been doing church planting. Um, I, I want to say that the the church plant was Emmanuel, um, and uh, they merged. That was Michael Mang, um, and he became the pastor, then a fellowship. And, uh, and it was kind of, a I think, a real encouraging time for the congregation.
0: Yes, and Fellowship is still a very close partner in ministry with us. Many of our students and staff and a couple of our faculty members attend at mm. Fellowship, and in particular, our Brazilian students find a home away from home at Fellowship Presbyterian Church, at least in recent years. They certainly have, and we're very appreciative of Pastor Martin Marty over there, who uh, a Covenant grad who just does great work as a great preaching ministry and um, really takes our students under his wings in his internship program. So as you think back at your time on Greenville, you've already touched on a little bit, how does Greenville Seminary fit into your personal history as a pastor, not, you know, both a preacher, but also as a pastor. And What did you learn here that continues to inform your ministry today?
1: So much. Um, one of the most quoted individuals in my life is uh, Henry Krabendam. Um His, and, and I guess what, what struck me most, and then this sits with me maybe more than just about anything else, is the very first class I went to with Dr. Kravendam, teaching and, you know, you always begin your class with, with prayer. Um, and usually, you know, if it's, if it's long winded, it's maybe two, three minutes. Um, and I, I believe we spent a full 30 minutes praying and Dr. K. Um, and I, to this day, remember the image, um, as he just reminded us of, of entering into the throne room of God and stopping and shutting the doors behind us that we might give God all of our attention. Um, and so one of the things that I've said is, he taught a lot of theology, taught a lot of practice, um, but really, Dr. K taught me to worship, um, and, I, and I'm and i grateful for that. You know, that's not, typically, you, I guess you have that down before you go to seminary, uh, but uh, Dr. Kravendam's passion for Christ uh, really impacted me, and he impressed upon us the seriousness of our calling, um, comparing it frequently with the uh, The hard work of a a medical doctor and recognizing how important that is, holding people's lives in their hands, and then he would remind us, and we as pastors will hold their souls. Um, And there's a seriousness to that that um, has gripped me throughout my ministry. Um, Another thing that I I really appreciate, I don't think I quite understood it when I first uh, went to Greenville, but Uh, the longer I was there and then since it's become so crystal clear, was having a a consistent um, theological philosophy that drives everything Um, so that the uh, Doctrine of Salvation class is not in any way isolated from or um, in opposition to pastoral theology or historical theology. Uh, having having that single mindset, there was benefit in other schools that I've gone to, which which allow for a, a much more diversity of ideas. Um, but having that unifying theme has just been really helpful, um, particularly serving in the PCA and trying to maintain a unified. Uh, Philosophy in my own ministry, and as I try to build that uh, within the local congregation, the presbytery, and and try to uh, vote at GA in a consistent
0: fashion. Not always an easy thing to do. I, I was I was reading your blog, and uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this up, but now seems like a good time to do it. You have a, a a pretty good common sense reflection on on one particular issue in the PCA last year, and and that was. That a church used um, an image of Christ in, on a church bulletin, and it was brought before GA. And uh, though the majority opinion uh, that brought before GA was that this did not break the second commandment because it wasn't fully in the context of worship, the minority report, uh, which which stated that no, this was a, an infraction of the second commandment, carried the day, and more votes uh, were cast for that than than the majority. And what we found. Um, was, however, that unfortunately, somebody included the actual image in, in the GA's report, and uh, a group of men said, hey, if this is a second commandment violation in a worship service and just in general, then why do we even have it in our records at all? Let's, let's cast it away. But there was a certain group that, that rose to the occasion to protest against eliminating the image at all. And and you had a reflection about this incident. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I, I was really struck with what harm would be done with striking it. What is the intention of demanding that this image must be in our minutes as a denomination? And I was particularly struck because it was clear during the debate and the discussion that uh, there were men whose consciences were were deeply troubled over this issue. Um, and it, it just seemed to me that Christian love, um, you know, let alone whether or not we're in the same denomination, which we are, and we hold to the same standards, that's Christian love in and of itself would demand, you know what, brother, if this causes you heartache, um, we won't put it in. And I, I, I was just disturbed, uh, that, that Christian love or, you know, the more archaic term really comes to mind, charity, at that point was not followed. Uh, but instead, we, we had to fight to get our way. And I don't associate myself. I voted in opposition. Uh, I, I definitely wanted it not in the minutes. Um, but it was just just heartbreaking to me that, that that decision would be made. I guess what was really heartbreaking was the fact there was even even an issue it just was such a simple matter um just let it go why would you fight it and it's just sad
0: yeah why would you fight to include it when we could just let it go yeah it's a good question yep. especially when we're talking about a um the fighting group in this case with t- the contentious divisive group <laughs> was a was, was a group that was all about having a a very irenic tone and seeking to build bridges <laughs> and common ground and and all those other wonderful things if anybody's interested in reading more about that you could check out uh, Pastor Vince's blog Wood Thoughts and uh, there's a link to it from the, the website for Providence PCA in New York. Now as you um, speaking about Providence PCA what would you say characterizes the ministry you conduct at Providence
1: you know at least where I'm aiming. Um, one of the things that I've said for a number of years, and trying to implement it. You know, that's always the the key is we we lift up the idea, and then we try to make decisions to move toward that idea. Um, but the the concept that that I believe that preaching is the lifeblood of the church. I just really do. Um, that is where uh, the nutrition from the word is excuse me, going to uh, go out to the people of God. But I'm convinced that shepherding is the heart. Um, that it is as the elders, um, and, and to some extent as, as other people are involved in, if you will, uh, shepherding not from the office, but, but from just in engagement in one another's life, that we're able to, to take that preached word and apply it to specific situations that individuals are facing. Um, sometimes it takes place in the the pastoral counseling ministry. Sometimes it takes place in visitation. Sometimes it takes place in a more informal time sitting next to someone at a a, a fellowship meal and uh, finding out what's going on in their life and being able to remind them of of uh, the, the preaching of the word, re- remind them of of the truth of scripture. And uh, with that then is is trying also to to help the ruling elders understand uh, that that there is one office of elder as we see it in the PCA. Um, And that means that they have shepherding responsibilities. Um, Sometimes I'm not a fan of the term ruling elder because it uh, gives us this iron-fisted idea, Um, but uh, the idea that they are to shepherd the flock. And we've tried a lot of different uh, ways of accomplishing that. Um, And I think we're starting to kind of get into a a little bit of a, a groove um, and have maybe hit an area uh, that matches the gifts of our ruling elders a little bit more. And I think through that is what has led to some of them to be a little more interested in uh, theological education. Uh, one of them, I think, is he's in the process of applying for the MMRE program at, at Greenville, um, but he's being very meticulous, so <laughs> you'll get his packet soon.
0: <laughs> I'll check in with him again to make sure he's not overthinking it, but I'm I, I have been in touch with him, and And, you know, I've gotten to meet a couple of your ruling elders in a a couple of different contexts, and, uh, I mean, I have no reason, no one's giving me a bribe to to really trump up, um, you know, just how great Providence, PCA, in York is, but uh, I do want to brag on your ruling elders a little bit. I've been impressed in my interactions with them. I have a deep admiration for the ones that I've gotten to know, and I'm really hoping that, that the one does enroll in our MMRE program starting this fall and, and can get a taste of, albeit m- not Dr. Kravendam or Dr. Singer, but get a taste of, of what you got to experience here at Greenville yeah. in terms of being immersed in a program of study, even while you're carrying on a full-time job on the side of it. You've given us a good picture of the role that ruling elders play at Providence, and I appreciate that. But before you received a call to minister there in York, Pennsylvania, you served as the MTW, it's Mission to the World team leader in Scotland. And what interested you about serving in the mission field and why Scotland in particular?
1: I appreciate the pronunciation there. It's it's proper.
0: I hope I um, hope you're not the only one. I know that we have some Scots that are listening to this who're probably rolling yeah. their eyes thinking, "What is this yank doing uh saying Scotland?" <laughs>
1: There, there is no doubt. <laughs> um, you know, uh, my, my passion for missions um, began to grow in 2003. I, I started taking our church on short-term trips to uh, Belize um, and was beginning to form relationships with some of the missionaries who were there. Um, and some of those relationships were, were very deep and uh, recognized that The mission field, even in a place like Belize, where they speak uh, English as the official language, uh, can be very difficult uh, for the missionary. And, you know, for years as a pastor, you have uh, missionaries that come in and you'll frequently spend time with them. And and I just had a a, a growing um, list of missionaries that we had a relationship with that when they would come to the States, they'd frequently stay with us. And my wife and I would spend extended amount of time talking with them as they kind of unpacked the struggles and how hard it was, um, both being on the field and coming back. Uh, then in 2000, I think it was seven, I was invited to go to African Bible College in Malawi uh, for 10 weeks. And uh, was able to take uh, my wife and my two sons, uh, my older son was able to teach uh, music while he was there um, and wonderfully he met the woman who had become his wife uh, while we were there, which was a great benefit. Um, but while we were there, I I saw once again, I mean, we were on this campus with uh, it was predominantly uh, Americans who were ministering in Africa, and uh, if, if you were to protect yourself from some of the, the difficulties of cross-cultural, this would be the idyllic spot. And yet folks were really struggling. It was just hard uh, because it's just hard uh, being on the mission field uh, and some of the challenges that they were facing. And with that, I had just a growing passion. How do I care for missionaries um, and help them be successful? Signed up with Mission of the World. I was asked to consider a different position, uh, which we ended up uh, not going to. Uh, and through the process, met the um, regional director uh, for um, Western Europe, and he asked me to consider the possibility of going to Scotland because they were having. It was just hard on missionaries. They were really going through a, a difficult time. Uh, we visited. Uh, I had a couple visits there. Spent some time with the missionary. Spent the time with uh, a number of the Scottish pastors um, to ask them some of what God was doing. To also ask them you know, what MTW should do differently. Um, and it, it just created a, a recognition that this is a place where our mission of the world missionaries are struggling. Um, we could go, and as a team leader, I could really utilize my pastoral gifts to build up um, our missionaries and help them to stay longer um, and therefore uh, bring about a, a, a greater harvest. And so that was a real passion uh, for doing that. In, that. in that, just some wonderful people, you know, in particular, David Robertson and Dundee, uh, just just a delightful guy. I uh, really appreciated my time with him.
0: And there are opportunities for ministry in Scotland today where there are many empty pulpits that need preachers to fill them. And um, I know MTW is involved in Scotland with Caledonian Call, and that's a group that has... Visited us here at the seminary um, to do some light recruiting and awareness among our students, and then of course the EPCEW in England and Wales is very active, and uh, there are several Scots who are involved in that particular denomination, which is really focused on church planting. And our extension campus in Gateshead, England, Westminster Presbyterian Theological Seminary, is uh, is a driving force behind that. In fact, we have we have a man graduating from that particular program this year and we're we're excited about that so um, That's funny. yeah so hopefully the Lord will continue to bring fruit from these many efforts at revival and reform in Scotland among the denominations there and in the churches there now shifting gears a little bit a couple of years ago you published a book called the train a model for transforming the heart can you give us a high-level overview of the book? Like what were your goals in writing it? Who was your primary audience and how have you seen it produce fruit since publication?
1: In a lot of ways, it's a model for pastoral minister or pastoral, uh, counseling, which is very different than therapeutic counseling. Um, in pastoral counseling, there's a lot of teaching, a lot of instruction. You, you need to, to, to guide, um, uh, the, the member of your church that you're working with. Um, It was uh, a model that began um, actually even before I was a ruling elder, and God had opened up opportunities to uh, engage in in pastoral counseling, even in the the church plant. Uh, The seeds were first there uh, when Randy Steele was taking us through an officer training class, and we spent a couple weeks on counseling, and it kind of gripped my heart. Um, and then I began to study the scripture a little bit more and try to understand the biblical teaching of the heart. Um, I shared this on my sermon on Sunday with the congregation here that we we, we talk a lot about uh, you know the distinction between our head and our heart. and uh, the reality is that's rather sloppy language uh, because biblically the head is part of the heart. Uh, the heart includes the mind, the will, and the emotions. and it's important to not only understand, those three concepts as a part of the heart, but also the relationship, and to understand that our emotions cannot, they simply are incapable of leading us. Our emotions always respond, and they respond to the faith choices that we make, and faith, according to James, uh, resides in the will, not in the mind. Um, But the mind always informs the will. Um, And as we understand that process that works much like a train, that the engine pulls the other cars, um, it, it helps us to find a stability in our emotions so that I see my anger is not someone else's fault. It's always my fault, which that means that when I'm mad at someone, they may have done something wrong. And before I can help them with that speck of error, I must remove my log of anger um, to be of, of any use to them. And so it's kind of a systematic trying to be consistent with those ideas uh, as we apply it to the various areas of our life, and maybe that's a little lower level flying than you wanted, but um, we'll we'll take that as, as as high as I can go with it.
0: <laughs> oh, no, that's totally fine. I mean it's it's not it's not a a terribly short book, so I think you summed things up quite nicely for us and kept it high level. In fact, um, our librarian here, Mr. Andy Wartman, who I think may have overlapped with you in seminary back in the early to mid-90s, he was not aware of your book. So I sent him a link to Amazon, and he said he, he was going to order it today and add it to the stacks here at the library as a resource to our students and uh, as part of our collection. So if, if you're a graduate and you're listening and you have a book out, make sure you you let us know because we'll, we'll at least buy one. Maybe
1: burn it. but uh...
0: <laughs> No, we wouldn't do that. So Vince, I took a brief look at your blog a little bit, earlier today and last week as i was preparing for this interview and i saw a post from last fall that caught my eye and i'm not talking about the general assembly post i'm talking about um this incident that happened in a church luncheon back in september can you share that experience and all of its trauma and glory with with our listeners
1: you know god is so merciful um we, we have uh, a, a senior's luncheon four times a year. Um, and let me step back. Two months before this, um, our deacons were putting together an emergency preparedness list. Um, what do we do in case of, you know, and they made a list of emergencies, everything from uh, uh, sudden blizzard to active shooter to... Whatever. And they said, well, one of the easiest things we can do is buy an AED machine and uh, put it out in the foyer, um, thinking, you know, it's, it's $1,500 that'll never get used, and that's all okay. So we do that. Um, this one gentleman, who's actually a World War II vet um, in his 90s, uh, came almost every time he comes, he writes a poem. Um, and our uh, pastoral associate uh, took time, and he read the poem, and just as he finished, uh, his wife cried out as he began to slump and fell down to the ground. Um, We, praise God, had some folks. There was another gentleman uh, who was able to uh, work with me, and we began uh, uh, CPR. Within a minute, uh, recognized that he just wasn't breathing, Um, we're able to pull out the AED, um, which by the way, never be afraid of it. It is absolutely the simplest thing and you simply can't do it wrong. Uh, if, if the heart's beating properly, it will not shock, even if you hit the button. So that's, that's, uh, not a a danger. And we just followed the instructions. Um, I believe we had to, I can't remember if it's once or twice, and he began breathing, and uh, by the time they put him in the ambulance, he was talking to the uh, uh, ambulance personnel, and uh, he still shows up every Friday to help fold our bulletins. And uh, uh, really, you know, saying it impacted him is kind of an understatement. Um, I think it really affected his uh, his faith as well. Um, and we just keep praying that God will bring... Uh, fruit more and more from that but uh, I'll tell you what that was an emotional time for for the entire group that was gathered.
0: I can imagine I mean like I said, you have equal parts, trauma and glory here um, yeah I but praise the Lord that you and your deacons were prepared for just such just such an incident or an occasion as that as unpleasant an incident an occasion. That was, I think, too many churches are caught off guard by things like this. Um, and, and not just the things that make headlines like, you know, uh, shooters, active shooter scenarios or whatever. But the things that um, that might get buried away in local news, but could easily be prevented. Uh, look at what you guys did. Now, this man, like you said, likes to write poetry. uh And he wrote a couple poems to commemorate this event, but the one that stuck out to me made me chuckle and uh, realize this World War II vet has a great sense of humor. He called it, My Very Shocking Pastor. Now, remember, Vince used the AED to, to to help resuscitate this man, and this is the poem, My Very Shocking Pastor. It's more than just coincidence that everyone was there. When I had a heart failure that caught me unaware, I had very little warning before I passed out in my chair at a church meeting in the middle of the opening prayer. I do not remember anything. I was completely in their care as they performed the procedure and saved my life right there. To Dan, Vince, and Daryl, I thank you for the saving of my life. Oh, yes, Jesus was also there, and he gave me back my life. I wish to thank the congregation for their prayers and love we have witnessed here on earth. God loves us from above, and we return his love and worship and praise him forever, and God we trust for our salvation and love forever and ever. There's a, a sweet little poem and the title is great my very shocking pastor. In fact, I might I might use that story to highlight uh, as a graduate highlight in something for the seminary in months to come um because if there's if there's one thing that Greenville men are it's frequently shocking in one way or another <laughs> and and you were you might be the only one that was literally shocking <laughs> for this particular gentleman so <laughs> I appreciated that You know, Vince, I I also really appreciate you taking a chunk out of your day today to speak with me and to share a bit about your ministry and the impact Greenville has had on you over the years with our listeners, uh, the listeners to the podcast, with prospective students, supporters of the seminary, and other friends. Do you have any closing thoughts for us before we close?
1: You know, I just, uh, again, and I I know I said it earlier, but just the the reminder and the appreciation that I have— for the, again, the consistent philosophy and theology that Greenville brings provides such a, a great foundation for ministry. Uh, we're, we're bombarded by information from, from so many different uh, perspectives, so many different ideas, uh, so many new books, so many different uh, things, and to be able to have that standard that, that is, is consistent and it takes us back, this is, this is what the Word of God says, this is what our confession says, um, and to be able to utilize that to determine which of these this information is useful. Um, I'm just really thankful, and I'm, I'm thankful for, for seeing uh, Greenville grow uh, and the, the, the quality of the students continuing to uh, increase. Um, I talked to other people around the, the country, as you know, we are actually around the world, um, and to just see the now. People know who Greenville Seminary is. Uh, when I graduated and went to my presbytery for examination, they said, "Where did you go to seminary?" Um, they just, you know, well, who are your teachers? And I, I mentioned the professors. They said, "Oh, oh, okay, well, that's good." Um, um, but to be able to see that, that Greenville is is gaining that reputation, and the reason is there there are men who are well trained who are doing good work, and uh, the, the news is getting out. So thanks, and thanks for. Uh, let me share a little bit of the story and the effect that uh, Greenville's had in in my life and ministry
0: Thanks Vince, Um, we are thankful for the men that have graduated from here who spent a season of of their lives with us and were called out to go serve the Lord and have been serving him faithfully And, and you are one of those men it's been 24 years in the ministry since you left us and so we're thankful for you brother You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.